good to be with you doing this again. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious Jesus, our Lord and our God, you bore our sins in your own body on the tree. Have mercy on us now and at the hour of our death. And through your grace, grant us eternal glory in the life of the world to come. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, topic for today is the witness of a faithful death. And in some respects, that will carry over what um, I'll do with you in the next two weeks as we take things in the Gospel of Mark uh, on those occasions. Witness of a faithful death. You know, as the... Uh, as the scriptures unfold for us over the centuries, God reveals more and more what our Christian hope will look like. We have the statement of Jesus in Romans, rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Dying for another person, dying for your country, dying for a cause. Here, Jesus talk, uh, Paul talks about Christ dying for us. There are passages in the Old Testament, however, that uh, seem to suggest that that kind of a hope at one time as yet didn't exist or God had not so revealed it. For example, in your Bible is Psalm 88, which by the way, didn't make the cut for those Psalms in the front of the hymnal. Maybe this is why. Every day I call on you, Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? So keep me alive now. Yeah. There are a few glimmers of hope. We heard it in the Old Testament reading for today. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And this is right in the middle of a section of all kinds of apocalyptic gloom and doom in the prophet Isaiah. So there is this ray of sunshine of what's coming. Of course, we're reminded of that passage in the book of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he'll stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Powerful stuff, but there are very few passages like that in the Old Testament, actually. And yet, when we come to, let's say, something like the rite of confirmation, we have this question asked of the catechumens. Do you intend to continue steadfast in this confession and church and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? Response, I do, by the grace of God. But how do we get to making that kind of a confession? Being willing to die for something. 
I think the usual uh, explanation is, well, we, we believe that there's something better after we die. And the scriptures certainly hold that out for us, the life of the world to come for which we just prayed. We know that now. But there are other things for which people give their lives, aren't there? So take you to something really old here. Uh, this goes back to 431 BC. It's a, a funeral speech delivered by the leader of Athens, a guy named Pericles. And he's uh, giving the, his uh, funeral speech here after the first battle of the Peloponnesian War, a famous conflict between Athens and Sparta. The dead have already been buried, and he is the leader of Athens, now has a few things to say. This speech is famous beyond measure. It's affected so many other speeches on similar kinds of occasions, not the least of which uh, Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg or Churchill in the spring of 1940. Sure, just a, it, it's, it's worth reading some of this. Um, he's addressing the question of, of course, is there any value to the soldiers who have died in battle? It's a long, long section, paragraph after paragraph, where he, he, he lays out the uh, distinctiveness of the Athea, uh, Athenian state and its heritage, what it means for the Athenians to have a democracy. So I break in sort of at the end of the speech. I'm gonna start uh, kind of in the middle of that paragraph I have uh, there with the words, they gave Athens their lives. They gave Athens their lives to her and to all of us. And for their own selves, they won praises that never grow old, the most splendid of sepulchers. Not the sepulcher in which their bodies are laid, but where their glory remains eternal in men's minds, always there on the right occasion to stir others to speech or to action. So, in other words, he's saying there's a purpose and function of their death beyond simply what they did in battle. For famous men have the whole earth as their memorial. It is not only the inscriptions on their graves in their own country that mark them out. No, in foreign lands also, not in any visible form, but in people's hearts, their memory abides and grows. It is for you to try to be like them. Make up your minds that happiness depends on being free, and freedom depends on being courageous. Let there be no relaxation, in fact, of the perils of the war. The people who have most excuse for despising death are not the wretched and unfortunate, who have no hope of doing well for themselves, but those who run the risk of a complete reversal in their lives and who would feel the difference most intensely if things went wrong for them. Any intelligent man would find a humiliation caused by his own slackness more painful to bear than death when death comes to him unperceived in battle and in the confidence of his patriotism. For these reasons, I shall not commiserate with those parents of the dead who are present here. Instead, I shall try to comfort them. And so he goes on. He addresses the, uh, 
the second paragraph there, as for those of you here who are sons or brothers of the dead, I can see a hard struggle in front of you. Everyone always speaks well of the dead, and even if you rise to the greatest heights of heroism, it will be a hard thing for you to get the reputation of having come near, let alone equaled their standard. When one is alive, one is always liable to the jealousy of one's competitors. But when one is out of the way, the honor one receives is sincere and unchallenged. And then he addresses the widows. Perhaps I should say a word or two on the duties of women to those among you who are now widowed. I can say all I have to say in a short word of advice. Your great glory is not to be inferior to what God has made you. This is all kind of akin to what you know, Lincoln says at Gettysburg, that henceforth these dead shall not have died, what? In vain. That there should be a new, a rebirth of freedom at the government of the people, by the people, for the people should not perish. That's why he's dedicating the cemetery. Um, and I think thus implied also that is that the reverse is true that the memory of the dead and what they did for the cause for which they died should impel you to keep for what they died alive. In Athens' case, democracy, similar is what Lincoln is saying in the Gettysburg Address. So there's no thought here of you, you, you died a particular kind of death and there's something better for you ahead though we'll see that is certainly the Christian hope. But there's this other element here as well, that a faithful, noble death can inspire the community to follow in their path. So this was Greek. Turn to the Romans here, bottom of that page. Uh, Virgil, the Aeneid uh, in book nine one of the characters desiring to imitate the hero says, my heart, mine too, can scorn this world and hold life well lost for the glory you hope to gain. That really the honor. So it's not, it's not the, uh, the glory of a, of a better life, but the honor held among human beings. Here, or another translation puts it, here is a heart that spurns the light that counts the honor you're after cheap at the price of life. Or the god Jupiter speaking a little later on to Hercules, every man's last day is fixed. Lifetimes are brief and not to be regained for all mankind, but by their deeds to make their fame last. That is the labor for the brave. The question in the scriptures, I, I think, um, becomes a bit more uh, pointed when, when it comes to a, a matter of persecution and giving one's life. There is uh, another one of those psalms that doesn't make it in, into the hymnal is Psalm 137. Um, By the waters of Babylon there we wept when we remembered Zion. So the psalmist is sitting in Babylon in captivity the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple. The Ark of the Covenant doesn't exist anymore. 
So we're weeping in Babylon and it says, our captors desired of us songs, our tormentors mirth saying, come on, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing us a Jerusalem tune. And then that question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That, that's the big theological question they're asking. No temple, okay, we're in Babylon a thousand miles away. How, you know, can we sing God's song here? And at the end of the psalm, happy shall he be who takes your little ones and throws them against the rocks. Ouch. Mm. That's graphic stuff. Okay. Well, the book of Daniel presents a similar kind of issue. So the story of the book of Daniel here in chapter 3 is contemporaneous with that psalm. And the issue here, of course, is persecution of the Israelites. Now, starting in this time, we begin to call them the Jews in, in Babylon. Uh, it's the story of the three men in the fiery furnace, of course. And uh, you know those three guys by the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But maybe you don't know, those are their Babylonian names, not their Jewish names. The Babylonians changed their names kind of brainwashing, they, they, and they have a religious aspect to it. Okay. It's, a long, it's a long story. I'm not going to read this, this whole thing. It is absolutely beautiful. almost kind of sounds like a children's story with all of its repetitions in, in here. It, it's just terrific. Okay. Um, I would point you to the second paragraph there. These folks that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these, these Jews are faced with the prospect of death or bowing down before this statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Okay. They're not going to do that. Notice their response here. Verse, second paragraph. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, the, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They believe that God can deliver them from the flames, and as you know the story, God does. Okay. But I think the more important point here is that they're willing to die even if God decides not to deliver them. Okay. They're willing to be a martyr rather than sin and forsake God to worship this idol. And you notice there's nothing in the text here about that as to the only reason they're willing to do it is because they know that bowing down to that statue is wrong. Okay? Not because by refusing to do it, they're going to go to heaven when they die. That aspect is not mentioned in the text. Okay? So they are willing to do it only because they know what the right thing to do is. Another one of these stories of this kind of a different sort uh, is the story of Susanna and the elders. It's from the uh, additions to the book of Daniel in the uh, Greek
Greek version of the Old Testament. It's a, it's a particular story that, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pops up in early Christian art in the catacombs all over the place. Um, catacombs, underground cemeteries in, in, in Rome. And, uh, yeah, well, okay, so, uh, so who wants to do art in underground cemeteries? Um, so we look at this stuff and it's maybe it's more like refrigerator art, you know, in, in terms of its quality. Uh, <laughs> But, but these two stories seem to dominate all, all over the place in, the, in this time of persecution in the, uh, in the early church. The three men and then the story of Susanna and the elders. Kind of, they've often been called resistance literature or just you know, stick to your faith kind of stories. This is one of them. Since you probably may not be so familiar with it, um, it's worth reading some of this. There was a man living in Babylon whose name was Joachim. He married the daughter of Hilkiah, named Susanna, a very beautiful woman and one who feared the Lord. When the people left at noon, Susanna would go into her husband's garden to walk. Every day, two elders saw her going in, walking about, they began to lust for her. Both were overwhelmed with passion for her. Once, while the elders were watching for an opportune time, she went in as before with only two maids and wished to bathe in the garden. It was a hot day. No one was there except the two elders who had hidden themselves and were watching her. She said to her maids, Bring me olive oil and ointments and shut the garden doors so that, you, so that I can bathe. As they did, they did, as she told them, they shut the doors of the garden, went out by the side doors to bring what they had been commanded. They did not see the elders because the elders were hiding. When the maids had gone, the two elders got up and ran to her. They said, look, the garden doors are shut, no one can see us. We're burning with desire for you. So give your consent and lie with us. If you refuse, we'll testify against you that a young man was with you and this is why you sent your maids away. Susanna groaned and said, I'm completely trapped. If I do this, it will mean death for me. If I do not, I can't escape your hands. I choose not to do it. I will fall into your hands rather than sin in the sight of the Lord. Do you understand what her dilemma is? She's going to die either way. And she makes the decision, I'm not going to give in to you. She decides to scream. Then Susanna cried out with a loud voice, and the two elders shouted against her. One of them ran, opened the garden doors. When the people in the house heard the shouting in the garden, they rushed in at the side door to see what had happened to her. And when the elders told their story, which is a total lie, the servants felt very ashamed, for nothing like this had ever been said about Susanna. So they're saying that, you know, she had sex with this invisible man. So 
the two elders then take Susanna to the court and accuse her of committing adultery with this non-existent young man in the garden. It's their word against her word. The court believes them and sentences Susanna to death, which is in Torah, death by stoning. You recall the episode in the life of Jesus in John's Gospel, right? That those without sin cast the first stone. That's the issue. Well, it just so happens that Daniel is in the crowd, the Daniel of the book of Daniel. And uh, he intervenes and he says, let me have each elder separately. I'd like to talk to each of them. He interviews each of them and they each tell a different story about what happens in the garden. And he says, okay, Susanna is in the right, they are in the wrong, and the two of them are executed as she would have been. Susanna is vindicated. The bigger question is, okay, why is this story here? What's the purpose of it? To store courage in the face of death. Yes, to take courage in the face of death. Again, do what is absolutely right. Do the right thing in the face of death. And this is exactly why this images depicting this are in the Roman catacombs as encouragement in, in when, you're, when you're faced with the question of life versus death, are you, are you a Christian or not, is what's being asked. Are, are you faithful to God or not? And take the consequence, take the consequence of this. Um, another story, uh, from, this is from 2 Maccabees, a um, little bit later time, we have uh, the story of uh, where the uh, Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, Greek Syrian king, uh, is persecuting the Jews. He's basically outlawing Judaism. Not only that, it's, it's genocide as well. And we're presented here with a scenario where there's a, a, a mother with seven boys and each one is asked whether they will re renounce Judaism and accept the Greek religion or not. They all refuse to accept the, the Greek religion and they're all executed. Uh, so if you go to the last paragraph on page five, so six of her sons have already died. While she was still speaking, the young man said, this is the seventh boy, what are you waiting for? I will not obey the king's command. I obey the command of the law that was given to our ancestors through Moses. But you who have contrived all sorts of evil against the Hebrews will certainly not escape the hands of God. For we are suffering because of our own sins, meaning the persecution that's come upon us. And if our living Lord is angry for a little while to rebuke and discipline us, he will again be reconciled with his own servants. But you, unholy wretch, you most defiled of all mortals, do not be elated in vain and puffed up by uncertain hopes when you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not yet escaped the judgment of the almighty all-seeing God. For our brothers, after enduring a brief suffering, have drunk of ever-flowing life under God's covenant. You notice there that new thing that's entertained. 
the dead have now received ever-flowing life. That's a new thought. But you, by the judgment of God, will receive just punishment for your arrogance. I, like my brothers, gave up my body and life for the laws of our ancestors, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation by trials and plagues to make known, to make you confess that he alone is God, and through me and my brothers to bring an end to the wrath of the Almighty that has justly fallen on our whole nation. That adds another dimension to it, that their martyr deaths will be part of God's instrument of bringing to, end, to the end the persecution. The king fell into a rage and handed him worse than the others, handled him worse than the others, being exasperated at his scorn. So he died in his integrity, putting his whole trust in the Lord. Last of all, the mother died after her sons. The end of all this is finally going to be a revolt against the Greeks um, and a three-year revolutionary war and the Jews will gain independence for a hundred years. Uh, after they gain in their independence they rededicate the temple in Jerusalem and that festival is then celebrated among the Jews and it is so even to this day every December. Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication is mentioned in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 10. In the New Testament we see several different approaches to faithful dying. The, the one approach is be courageous and willing to die because there is a better life for you coming than what you have now. Certainly that's reflected uh, in the letter to the Hebrews that you have here. Uh, after listing uh, all a, a number of uh, Old Testament uh, heroes of faith, it says they, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, as, you know, we are exiles from our true home of heaven. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not to be ashamed, ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A similar thought in that next passage. Or in 1 Peter, uh, the entire letter of 1 Peter, uh, written by Peter, no doubt from Rome, in the uh, aftermath of the great fire in Rome in uh, the summer of 64, which destroyed uh, four districts in Rome, 10 out of the 14 was hit by the fire, a million people are homeless, and Nero blames the fire on the Christians. And Nero's blaming of the fire on the Christians then sparks localized persecutions against Christians throughout the empire in the fall of 64. Peter himself will be executed by crucifixion probably in October of 64 AD. Just before uh, he is, he writes this letter to a Christian congregations in, in what is present-day Turkey. And Notice the, his language here. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose abundant mercy has begotten us anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you, who by the power of God are being guided through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the end of time. In those words, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Every one of his reading, readers was expecting an inheritance when, the, uh, you know, when their parents die, of course. The only inheritance they're getting is not going to be of a monetary kind. It's going to be the one they'll have with, with Christ in heaven. In this you rejoice, even if for a now, for a little while, you have had to suffer various kinds of trials. These have come to reveal the true metal of your fire-refined faith. Uh, not an accidental uh, uh, choice of words, I think, because Peter has experienced firsthand the fire in Rome. Worth far more than perishable gold, which will elicit praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then this gorgeous statement, without having seen him, you love him. Without seeing him now, you trust him and rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay. So he's encouraging them to go through that. By the, at the, in the very end of the letter, he'll also remind them, um, your brothers and sisters throughout the world are experiencing your same kind of suffering. It, it's, it's there and it's certain. Can you have courage to take it through to the end? A twofold kind of way of approaching this uh, is in the book of Revelation. The quote I've got here is from chapter 14 and begins by talking about the 144,000 standing before the throne. These are the martyrs. So John in Revelation gets this, this vision of those who are, have died in Christ. They, they've given their, their lives rather than renounce Christ. They're singing a new song, which only they who had been redeemed from the earth could learn. So the picture is, uh, and, and earlier in the book of Revelation, uh, a similar kind of vision of these 144,000 holding palm branches, the sign of victory, okay? Assuring, John is assuring his persecuted readers that, that those who die in Christ will be with Christ forever and ever and ever, and all weeping and sighing will fade away. Notice the next line that I've got here for you. They were purchased from among humankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Hmm. They were purchased from among human beings as first fruits to God. Purchased by whom? Hmm? Christ. Christ, yes. They were purchased with the blood of Christ. They gave their blood, Christ gave his blood. In fact, uh, a later vision in the, in the uh, book of Revelation shows uh, 
Jesus as a conquering warrior on a white stallion, and it says his robe is dipped in blood. I don't think that's Jesus' blood anymore. It's the blood of the martyrs, the persecuted church. So what is the function of martyrdom in that one sentence? They were purchased from among humankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. By their blood. What is that? By their blood and giving their lives. By, by, their, by the giving their lives, yes. So what is meant by that term first fruits? That's not a, that's not a word we use often any, anymore. It was as is Yes, so in, in the book of Deuteronomy, this is the, the law of the first fruits. And it wasn't just the Jews, the Hebrews who had that. Other cultures had that same kind of a, a, a thing. That is, that the first thing, I don't know, if you own an orchard, the first apple belongs to God. Uh, if you're a shepherd, the first lamb born in the spring belongs to God. What, whatever it is. We tend to think of that as, Ugh, I've got one less now. But you've got a whole orchard full of apples, folks. All it takes is the one, the one apple. Give it to God. It's not so much I'm giving this up and now I've got to do without it. It's actually quite the opposite. Once you give your one apple, you can make as many apple pies as you want. You, can have, you give the one lamb, you can have the use of the whole flock. So another, another way of putting it is, the offering of the first fruits frees up the rest. So it's not about the doing without, it's, being, it's the having, which is the great thing. So what, is the, what does this mean then? The, the, the martyrs here uh, are, first, are the first fruits to God. It frees up the rest of the church. The premise in the book of Revelation is not that all, not even most Christians are going to be martyred. That's, that's not the thought. If, in fact, um, the book of Revelation only can, as it's being written, can only name one Christian in that neck of the woods to which it, John is writing, can only mention one Christian by name who's already died for his faith, a guy named Antipas mentioned in the letter to Pergamum, back in chapter 3, I think. So it, the vision is, even, even though he's got this big number of 144,000, uh, that's symbolic, of, obviously, of a large number, but it's not envisioning that everybody's going to die as a persecuted mar martyr. What it does indicate, however, is that the martyrs here do have a special role to play in giving the rest of us courage. If there are some who are willing to give the ultimate, you know, for their faith, then you and I, who are not faced, you know, with a sword on our throats, can certainly live courageously as well. I think that's what the book of Revelation is trying, trying to say here. Thus, the, the martyrs have always had this, this role about them that uh, it's, on the one hand, of course, 
the, the message is given that they are with they are with Christ. In fact, the book of Revelation will even say they've got the resurrection, resurrected body now already, like, like Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. So, you know, go ahead and be martyred, okay? But this also frees us up. Thus, that other line at the bottom of page six there, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Yes, indeed, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The rest is in heaven. They're resting from their heavens with Christ, but their deeds follow him here on earth, I take that to mean. Now, there's the witness of what they did lives on among us. Sort of akin to the kind of thing Pericles was talking about with the Athenian dead. In a whole nother context here though. So their deeds follow them. Thus, the, the martyrs should play, not just have, but should play an important role in the church's life. If uh, on, our, on our Lutheran calendar, at least in LSB, I, the one thing I do find unfortunate there is that other than the apostles, there are only four martyrs listed on the church calendar, which I think is far too few. Okay. But the editors of the hymnal themselves admit these are only suggestions. Okay. You, know, you can add more to the list, and there certainly are. Uh, page seven. Speaking of martyrs, well, here is an, uh, an account of an early Christian martyr, St. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna was one of the churches to which the Book of Revelation was addressed in Western, today Western Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. Um, this is a, it's a very long account written by the Church of Smyrna describing the death of their bishop and numerous others as well. Uh, in a persecution in the second century. Uh, the date of this uh, letter is uh, February, well, the martyrdom actually is uh, February 23rd, 156, 156 AD. This is the earliest reference to a saint's day that we have. So uh, after going at, at length and describing his conf uh, Polycarp's confession of faith, he was 86 years old, uh, he was burned at the stake. The church then said, we later took up his bones, more precious than costly stones, more valuable than gold, and laid them away in a suitable place. Respectful burial and a suitable place, as we'll see, for the folks to come back to the grave. There the Lord will permit us, so far as possible, to gather together in joy and gladness to celebrate the day of his martyrdom as a birthday. In memory of those athletes who have gone before, and to train and make ready those who are to come hereafter. You see, that grave of Polycarp is training those yet to come. We need to go to that grave and be reminded of what Polycarp did. Such are the things concerning the blessed Polycarp, who martyred at Smyrna along with 12 others from Philadelphia, is alone remembered so much the more by everyone that he is even spoken of by the heathen in every place. 
Huh. So the witness of his death even impresses non-Christians. Kind of like that episode, I think it was back in 2016, where uh, 20, 21 uh, men were uh, uh, beheaded by ISIS on the, on the Libyan beach. After their deaths, the Coptic church uh, checked church rolls to see if uh, uh, any were Christians. They wanted to give Christian burial. And they, they saw that they could only find the names of 20 out of the 21. Uh, the 21st was a guy named Matthew from Ghana who was working there. And when they had begun to cut off the heads of those others, he had not been a Christian before that day. And when they came to him, they asked, are you a Christian too? And he says, yeah, yeah their God is my God too. And they cut off his head. That's the witness of martyrdom. And my one last thought here would be uh, Martin Luther. His first hymn, it's not really a hymn, it's more of a ballad, okay, uh, 1523. It's a hymn, as you see, in 12 stanzas. They wrote long hymns back then. Um, I find, uh, it's, it's on the occasion of the martyrdom of two Augustinian monks in Brussels. Um, when Luther got, got word of it, uh, these, these uh, Augustinians, every, all of them in the, the monastery had embraced the teaching of Luther. Uh, all but two retracted their, their faith in evangelical Catholicism, and these two uh, were willing to die rather than give it up. And when that news reached Luther, uh, as he was teaching a class, uh, he just broke down and wept. Uh, he said, uh, I should have been the first martyr in this cause, not them, in response. And the the church had been proclaiming lies about, about them, and in fact saying that, well, they really recanted uh, when, when they did not. So he writes this hymn, this, this ballad, uh, to set the record straight as to what all that happened. I know we're at time. A couple lines strike me in, um, I don't know how yours is numbered here, well, what should be number three is number one. Okay. <laughs> a new song be by us begun. God help us tell the story to sing what our Lord God hath done unto his praise and glory. And that theme will wind its way throughout this, this hymn that their martyrdoms is something God has done. It's not something unfortunate that, is, that has happened. In fact, it's setting into motion the further proclamation of the gospel. What's numbered is number one on your page, which is really number three. Uh, the last two lines, but God, the tables turning, denied them all the victory. Okay. We'll just close with the last stanza, number 12. That is numbered correctly. He's, he's speaking of the members of the church who've been telling lies about what really happened. Well, let them lie forevermore. No favor they'll be earning. Will ever thank our God, therefore. His word is now returning. The summer is hard by the door and winter starts to shun it. The tender flowers now bloom once more and he who hath begun it will surely complete his work. Yeah. Beginning with these martyrs. All right.
Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.